Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Heart Speaks. I'm Chloe Valdery, and thanks for being with me today. In this episode, I speak with Coleman Hughes, Camille Foster, and Brittany Talissa King. I wanted to speak to these awesome individuals to get their take on the topic of race post-2020. But this was not the typical conversation about Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, or even woke ways of being. This was a conversation rooted in human psychology. We explored what it means to be in relationship with another human being, what it means to get to know another human being on an intimate level, their idiosyncrasies, their complexity, their uniqueness, and really the importance of doing that, of practicing the art of relationship. We also explored the question of whether we've become less and less capable of doing that with each other. And if so, how does that impact our conversations on race? How does that make us more likely to caricature each other and stereotype each other? Now, just a heads up, the camera quality was not the greatest for this episode. So I apologize in advance if the camera seems delayed a bit when I'm speaking. I'm still working through all the kinks of running a podcast, but I really enjoyed this talk and I hope you do too. Well, thanks to all of you for hopping on this little podcast, this new podcast that I have now. Brittany, it's my first time meeting you, which is super, super cool. I'm super Yeah, this is nice. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on. I was like, did she want me on here? Did she get the wrong name? Brittany King? Okay, fine. Of course, of course. Um, I'm really super excited to get to know you more and to have everyone just vibe. Um, So the name of this podcast is The Heart Speaks. So I'm going for a bit of a more humanistic vibe a humanistic angle so i'm gonna try to try to aim for that in this conversation this is technically the first black intellectual podcast that we're doing in honor of the of brett weinstein's black intellectual roundtable that we had last year um so we wanted to kind of continue that theme i want to start by asking you guys a very like low-key question and or maybe not but it's basically like is there something that you learned about yourself that you didn't know about yourself during the pandemic? Dang. <laughs> really? Chloe, are you going to hit us with that? I'm like, in this yes, let's go. Let's dive right in. I learned about myself. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to seem like I'm not introspective, <laughs> but, but I, I wonder if it's not learning something about kind of the way I already was versus discovering things about who I am or who I'm becoming or what I'm most likely to value going forward. But I can't be specific about those things at the moment. But I I think I'm very, I'm very aware about the kind of progression, the progression of Camille Foster and the diversification of my interests, even at my advanced age. Okay. So you would say that your, your interest expanded. Uh, yes, but also just the reprioritization. I think that's the thing that the pandemic has kind of forced. I, I, we were talking earlier about me making this dramatic move cross coasts in the midst of the pandemic and then discovering maybe 12 months in that I don't know if this is a suitable long-term strategy for me. Maybe I was better off where I was. And I have to imagine that there are lots of people who've done similar, similar sort of shuffling 
Uh, and I think that that actual physical journey, like there is, there are plenty of things happening inside of me and in families and in communities that I'm a part of that are very similar in that way, where you kind of do something pretty dramatic and there's every possibility that you will completely revert back to the mode you were in before, mm-hmm. um, which is okay, which is okay. There's no, no judgment about that for myself. I don't feel like I've done anything to be disappointed in or that there's a failed project. It's just, there's an inevitability about change, about your changing appetites and interests. And it's probably worth observing and being kind of curious about more than it is to be terribly judgmental about. Mm-hmm. I want to focus a little bit on what you just said about curiosity versus judgment a little later, but I want to ask Brittany and Coleman that same question. Well, funny enough, I would use curiosity and judgment as something that happened a lot during the pandemic. I graduated from NYU, like it was December, 2019. So I like graduated into the pandemic. Hmm. And when I was writing, I started to get realized, I guess I was getting really suspicious with things that I believed in. Mm. And it really was after the the protests were happening and I was seeing how superficial things were happening, like the black boxes and like people like posing on Instagram and like the yellow murals in the streets. And I was just kind of like, there's something really off about this. Yeah. And I was writing a lot during that time and with that curiosity, I was producing prose and trying to get at these ideas of why I was so like perplexed at things that I was so sure about. And now I'm like, I'm seeing it in a different light, probably because of quarantine, probably because I was by myself and I was with my own thoughts. And so that is something like reflecting back. I don't think I would have gave that answer, but since you asked that, I realized that's the time where I got really suspicious about culture and what I believed in. So awesome. Yeah. Colin. Yeah, I guess for me, I'm not sure if it made me change or realize anything, but it definitely brought a few things really into sharp focus. One was how important it is to to actively maintain and stay in touch with your friends. Mm-hmm. And that, that was something I just, I don't think I ever actually realized it in my life because I was usually living in a pattern when I, where I would encounter my friends, you know, my best friends naturally in life. So I would never have to work to maintain those friendships. And then it also, it just makes you think, and I'm, I'm notoriously bad at like, quote unquote, keeping in touch. This is just like, it's like not something I'm, I've ever been in the habit of in my life. So I started developing that habit for real. Mm out of necessity. Um, and I think that's something that wasn't, should have been important my whole life that, that I didn't realize was important until you have to stay in a room basically by yourself for months. Yeah. Would you say that before the pandemic, you took the, uh, capacity to just catch up with friends at whim for granted or just to say hi to, to friends, yep. you know, at any moment for granted. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Is that I, I took it for granted because m- mostly all my friends have lived in New York and I've usually mm. made the friends in New York and I'm, I go out enough. I see them, even if I don't, on the rare occasion, I don't, I don't see someone for several months. I know I'm going to see them again. Yeah. 
and we'll have a chance to catch up. So I never had to put proactive effort into mm. friendship, friendships as relationships. And then, and, and, and then when you're in, in a scenario where, you know, you're, you're, you have friends all over the place, living at home, quarantining, it's like that. You're not going to talk if you, if, if you don't, if no one makes the effort, you know? Yeah. So that was the first time that my entire social world became that scenario. Hmm. And that was a, for, for some people that wasn't a shock because they're always in the habit of keeping touch. Mm-hmm. But for people that aren't in the habit of keeping touch, I think that was a big, uh, important realization. And then the other one is that more time doesn't necessarily mean more productivity. Mm. Time and productivity are two very different things. And in, in certain moments during the quarantine, I felt I was very productive because I'm, I, I, I can enjoy being alone all day if I, if I feel like I have a purpose, if I feel like I'm doing something. Yeah. Um, but there are other times where I feel like I just, I have much more quote unquote free time, but I'm not, I'm not feeling it with the sort of fiery productive effort mm-hmm. that, you know, I, when I was at Columbia pre COVID that if I had one hour to spare, I'm like all in on this hour doing mm-hmm. as much as I possibly can to finish some piece of writing or something like that. So yeah, time and productivity are two, two totally different things. So are you saying you felt maybe a little bit less driven at, at moments during the pandemic? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. A- especially less driven to, I mean, d- during the George Floyd, the, the peak of the George Floyd era, I was very motivated as, as you were talking about Brittany to write because of what was going on. You know, the country was on fire. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. But in other moments, it, it is, it's a little difficult to muster the same level of motivation when you're just alone in your apartment, reading the news that can feel more abstract when you're not allowed to go out into the world and see stuff for yourself and, mm-hmm. and experience what's going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just a, a little bit, uh, so, so if figuring out how to reinvent motivation in that context has been interesting. For sure. Yeah. I, I personally started meditating during COVID for the first time. I know I had spoken to you, Coleman, actually before COVID and you were telling me about the benefits of meditation. And I was basically like, not for me. <laughs> basically, that's what I, that's what I felt. And then COVID hit and I was like, well, I feel like the nervous system of the entire world is about to shut down in a psychological way. And people are going to be, there's going to be greater scarcity and people are going to be more driven to tribalistic ways of thinking because where there's scarcity, that's just how human nature works. And so I need to make sure that I'm centered or start down the process of being centered so I can deal with that. Um, So that's something that I personally discovered as a practice Uh, during COVID. I'm curious if any of you uh, resonate with anything um, some of your your peers on the Zoom call have said about the things that they experienced with regards to, you know, curiosity or not being motivated. Um, I'm I'm wondering if anything, for example, that Coleman said might resonate with you, Camille, or you, Brittany. 
Um, unlike Coleman, I was motivated. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I was motivated because of where culture was was pushing in that momentum. I was motivated to write mm. and kind of like blueprint my thoughts with with my articles and whatnot. But with Coleman, with just staying in touch, that is mm. something definitely I can go. I'm not, I guess I'm that friend where I don't have to have a text every day or call every day to know that I'm good friends with this person. Like we can not talk for six months and then I'll just go over to your house and it's all good. Like (laughs) I'm that type of person, but I did realize during quarantine, how it was important to reach out more and that how little I do reach out because I'm so, I do like my own time and I'm, and I'm usually kind of isolated with my thoughts but I realized, wow, I don't reach out enough to people that I love. And I need to like mm. tell people that I love that I do love them more. So I definitely share that sentiment that Coleman said. Yeah. I suspect that part of what makes this a bit different um, is that whether or not we're introverted or extroverted, we're all in uh, kind of an arena professionally where we do a lot of talking and thinking and writing aloud for mm-hmm. other people. We even engage in conversations publicly and record them sometimes and strangers <laughs> will watch them and hopefully benefit from them. Um, and what I found myself doing a lot was needing to ensure that I wasn't just having kind of this volume of interactions with other people, but that mm-hmm. they were meaningful and intimate. So I would reach out to people and some of you have probably done this too, actually um, reach out to people directly and say, Hey, let's have a conversation. It would be great if we were having it in a medium where we're not being surveilled by <laughs> strangers, which yeah. I think it's wonderful that I honestly wonderful and a privilege that anyone thinks that my perspective on a broad universe of things, um, some more than others um, is worth being interested in, but the importance of being able to kind of probe ideas myself, but alongside other people without a bunch of people watching, Mm. um, because it very quickly became a circumstance where every conversation I was having for a while, like we're recording it and we're releasing it someplace. Mm. And the, the odd kind of societal shift that happened around that has been, it's taken a little bit of getting used to, um, and was something that I initially thought, oh, this is going to be great. Wow. This is, this is amazing. Um, and finding the right balance uh, related to that has been really important. Finding ways to to enrich uh, these interactions so that they are sufficiently intimate, so that I'm mm-hmm. getting kind of the necessary attributes of that kind of human interaction, like out of those experiences, has been really important as well. And and I think that directly relates to how I've ebbed and flowed in terms of my productivity and my interest in pursuing certain kinds of things. Versus the three months that I take off to say, work on renovating a house, which is becoming an annual tradition for me. <laughs> so, Are you doing that again? Well, before <laughs> I sold my house in Brooklyn uh, last year, I had to do a little bit of that. So that was consecutive summers. Of oh, a little bit of that. I mean, as a fifth column listener, I remember the first minutes <laughs> of every podcast for about six months was what is the latest with Camille's yeah. renovation? Is yeah. that going to happen again? Are they going to get part two? Well, you know what? what? What I hope is to the extent it does happen again, it'll be better planned. The part of the reason for us continuing to talk about it so much was just the shock that it was to me because I mm. bought the place and didn't expect to have to do a lot of work. Um, but then it just consumes you and it becomes mm. the only thing you care about getting it right. <laughs> so, but we did it. That was a success. I'm happy about that. <laughs> well, awesome. Congrats on that. I didn't even, I didn't even know this was a thing. 
This is the last time <laughs> I'm hearing about this. Um, the lives of other people, you never know. I'm curious, what do you think, and this is for anyone, what do you think is the relationship between cultivating deep, unshallow communion, fellowship with people so that you can actually get to know them and to know their the, the, the fact that they contain multitudes, right? Um, and to know them on a deeply intimate level. What is the relationship between that? Or let me phrase the question differently. What is the relationship between not doing that and adopting shallow, superficial opinions on race? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think is the... Because I, I sense that there's a connection there, but I would love for you, for you to try and tease that out. I have thoughts on this. Okay. So I, I think that we all know from experience, if you have close friendships, which, you know, almost every psychologically normal person has or, or close relationships, mm-hmm. you know that the, the more and more you get to know somebody, the less and less the, the, the category markers about them matter. Mm-hmm. Like the, their, their race even even where they're from you you get to get to know somebody is to know more and more about precisely all the ways in which they deviate from the stereotypes of where they're from and how they're different from the other members of their family and how they maybe didn't fit in here yeah um it's to get to know all the intimate details about them as an individual, precisely the ways in which they're not merely representative of a group and that, that it's beyond race. It's just, it's just anything. Whereas the first time you meet someone, you don't know much about them. Mm-hmm. You know, often the, the first layer of how you can get to know them is by, by knowing, Oh, you're from this place and you're okay. What do I know about people from, Oh, you're from Latin America. You know, I, this is what I know about, you know, Uruguay, you, you start, that's where you start. You start with all the superficial category identifiers to get in the door, but the more you get to know them and to the extent you become close, all of that stuff melts away and you're left with an individual that you, that, that you're getting to know as, as an individual. And that's, mm-hmm. I don't think that's uh, just a feature of intimacy. I think that's what intimacy is. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that you are really focused on making the category identifiers, uh, race and otherwise, the main feature, you are, you're discouraging yourself from getting into the individual, mm-hmm. which, is, which is, I think, really where intimacy lies. I would just briefly add on that because I agree with what Coleman just said, but it's like, what questions are you asking to get at that person's humanity? Like, usually I connect with people like with music and Mm -hmm. and film and things that I enjoy. And then what actually has happened is when there is a disagreement, let's say, God forbid on Twitter, or I see that they have said something I might not agree with. At least there's backstory there where I know who they are Mm -hmm. to where the conversation isn't going to be as divisive or polarizing because I know what they're about. So yeah, I, I agree with Coleman. Um, and, and I mean, that's difficult to do sometimes because people, I think, just are suspicious of people right now yeah. and not knowing people's intent and thinking like if they are friends with this person that I'm, I'm agreeing with your ideas or I'm aligning with you on this. 
but, and I just had this conversation with someone, I won't say who it is because it will be a podcast, (laughs) but this person had a problem with the fact that I had a public conversation with someone who is, let's just say not for the vaccines. Okay. And I said, well, I don't believe in not having a conversation with someone because of that issue, mm-hmm. especially when I'm talking about that it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think things like that. And plus, because I've had conversations with this person where they make a case for why they're not for it and you yeah. can't change people. Yeah. Like people get to be human the way they want to be. So I guess <laughs> that's how I see it. Now, years ago, I, I don't think I would be saying this, to be honest. Yeah, I was definitely someone that I could get to know you and you're cool. Okay. We like Kendrick Lamar. That's, that's nice. But you voted for this person (laughs) deuces. Like I was kind of like that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But now I've become way more sober to the idea that I get to be a human and everyone else gets to be a human. And I would not want that dictated on my life. I'm not going to do that to somebody else. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I can really add to that in a, in a meaningful way. I completely concur. Um, the, especially this, this notion of intimacy being knowing someone in an individual way and mm-hmm. abandoning whatever other tropes or ideas you may have about them, recognizing the ideas that they have about themselves and the particular way that they go about thinking about the world. I think the, the word curiosity comes to mind again. That's mm-hmm. the prerequisite, I think, for having uh, an, a meaningful relationship like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And certainly you hope the conditions are right as well. And that someone is reciprocating because it can be hard to be curious about someone who's just kind of a, an asshole to you. Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't know what the rating of this is going to be, Chloe. Sorry, we just went PG-13 there. I don't know yet, either, um, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to me because, Brittany, what you're talking about is like, for me, I have relatives, I have family members who are not vaccinated, right? And I and I love them very much. And um, I have oftentimes tried to yell at them over the phone to get vaccinated as if that's- How's that work. working out, <laughs> Right, that's not, that's not a thing. Just it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, I could- And it's hard because, you know, in my moments of vanity, I'm like, you're making me look bad. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So totally honest. Yeah, exactly. Like, (laughs) you're making me look bad. Like, I'm related to you. Like, I don't, you know, but that's, I I had to, I had to recognize that that's like a very vain thing and you're your own person and you're going to be your own person. You're going to make your own decisions and you have a certain, obviously amount of autonomy that I have to respect and a certain amount of sovereignty that I have have to respect as a human being. And what's really going on behind my need to convince you to do this? Like, is it only because I care about you or is it because I don't want you to make me look bad really? And so I have to like unpack that. But I do think that but I think that that dynamic plays a role in stopping people from wanting to get curious about others that they disagree with. It's like, well, if I'm associated with you, am I going to look bad? Is it going to be like other people are going to be judging me? You know, so I'm wondering if you think, and again, this is for anyone, if you think that plays a role, how does that play a role in the race conversation, right? If, if all these publications on the left, for example, are saying that you have to think this way and act this way when it comes to promoting social justice. And if you don't, we're going to cancel you or whatever. 
how does that stop a person from being willing to be curious, wanting to dive deeper into being an actual relationship with other human beings? How does that actually further perpetuate and incentivize the caricaturing of Black and white people alike? Mm. I know I asked, I asked a lot These are good there, questions. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about something Brittany said early on, uh, just about the cultural zeitgeist and how things shifted uh, mm. after George Floyd and, and Christian Cooper um, the the Central Park murder, which happened mm-hmm. same same day. That's true. Wow. Yeah, yeah same I day. It was that. the morning. Yeah, I forgot. About um, that. Yeah, for a little while there. I mean, when if you were tracking the news, the, the Central Park murder story was actually a bigger story than the George Floyd right. story for the first mm-hmm. couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Even mm-hmm. while the video was starting to circulate, um, but there's there's something there's something about the kind of performative nature of so much of the energy that was unleashed after that, uh, that I think really embodies the, the difficulty that we've seen with people embracing these very concrete views about how one has to think about race, how one has to perform race, how one even has to perform kind of race relations um, that I think is, is intensely incurious Mm-hmm. Um, and that promotes uh, a kind of stultified thinking about the world, about complex problems. It reduces all manner of complex problems that are kind of community-based, that may be unique to a particular neighborhood. Um, and it just generalizes about them and mm-hmm. operates within these kind of butterfly effect-like axioms where yeah. <laughs> all of it can be reduced to white supremacy. Every Every relationship, every um, economic disparity that exists, every sort of social dysfunction that exists or persists, like all of it can be reduced in this very neat and tidy way. And that by so doing, you can signal your loyalty to your particular tribe, indicate that you're a very good person. Um, There's a sense in which social signaling has always been an attribute of being a member of a, of a society, whether mm-hmm. it be a really simple society or a very complex society. But the kind of speed of the change more recently and the very specific kinds of changes that we're seeing um, in terms of the, the kind of cultural attitudes, the specific idea, which I think is a kind of departure from like the humanist traditions around a respect for individual autonomy mm-hmm. um, and a belief that these racial categories aren't fundamental to who and what we are, the trend is very much in the other direction at the moment. And finding ways to oppose that cultural shift without being kind of captured in a reactionary sort of way that makes it so that you're not advocating for these humanist values, but you're advocating against the kind of cultural, the weird shifting towards kind of tribal sentimentalism. Um, I think that's something that I've been thinking an awful lot about. And I know amongst the four of us, actually, that that's something that we've all been publicly talking about and advocating about in different ways. Um, but that is a long, rambly reply to what you <laughs> asked, Chloe. And I'm not sure that it's completely in line with the question. But <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We can go off in, I'll, in I'll park multiple it there. directions. <laughs> I have something actually to connect with what Camille said. Like during that time I was talking about, I was suspicious. I was actually reaching out to some of my friends and some of my my black friends who were really 
heavily involved with like Black Lives Matter. And I started asking them things to see, to get their take. Are you suspicious on this as well? Or is this just me? And I started asking them like, okay, so I know like a, a phrase that's normalized, like white silence is violence. And, and white people can't be silent in times of injustice. But don't you notice that when we get into these meetings or these events and we're talking about race relations and then if someone speaks up that's white, we, we are like, no, this is your time to be quiet. I'm like, don't you see there's a bit of a contradiction there? Like, shouldn't this be the time where people are engaging and talking about the issues? And then I asked them, you know, I know that we're really hard on people for being a performative ally, but when you say silence is violence, it's almost like show, like, see, I'm not racist, I'm anti-racist, I'm here for you. So it's like incentivizing them to perform allyship because they're like, well, when I try to talk to you in the meeting, you don't want me to talk, mm. but you want me to say something here, but you want me to say George Floyd's name, but when I want to talk about what happened to him, I can't. So yeah, they're going to, I'm going to Instagram it and I'm going to black box and I'm going to show people that I'm on the good side of history. And then they get shut down in that way. Hmm. And I understand though, like even me bringing this up to, to my friends, it might sound, they never said it, but it could sound like, oh, like anti-black or like Mm -hmm. that I'm trying to just, you know, be on the champion for non-black. It's like, no, I'm actually... I care about black lives. That's why I'm asking these questions because some of this doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, I, Camille, you did not ramble on. <laughs> I was, I was like, yep. Yep. I agree with that. So yeah. It resonated with you. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something I noticed and that bothers me a lot as well is when I feel that people are using a, a, a legit social cause to bully other people. Mm. Mm-hmm. In, in a way that is um, really sinister. Like, you know, I, I, if, if anyone put me in a scenario because of my race where I was having to essentially play an unwinnable game, mm. which is to say being silent would piss off some members of the people I'm supposed to be pleasing, but speaking and saying just, you know, anything that doesn't, exactly hit the right note would also piss off other people. And I felt like the whole thing was, was sort of uh, infected by this power dynamic where in general, I was, I was being socially dominated for reasons I couldn't really see how they related to advancing the ball into the end goal on the issue of racial justice and unarmed black people getting killed by the cops. Mm-hmm. I think I would, I would give them the finger <laughs> and, and I would say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Fuck you. This is a power trip. It's I can see that you're, you're enjoying. Like people enjoying being in a, in a, in a position of social authority where anything you do I mean, this is like what it is to, to have social powers. Like anything you do is right. Mm-hmm. Anything you, you do, it, anything you say is right simply by the fact that you said it. If you want to mm-hmm. say nothing at all, you, you stand no risk of, of lowered social status. Whereas the person on the bottom of the local totem pole 
And I know it's, it's going to sound crazy to say a white person could ever be on the bottom of a total pole, but power dynamics can be local. They can be within yeah. a specific room at a specific company and they could reverse the moment you get out the door. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking about, you know, rooms where, where if you're black at the height of the George Floyd moment, or you're even now in some spaces and you want to use your race in order to exercise social power in a room. Mm-hmm. There's many spaces where that's totally possible. And where if you're white, no matter how, how thoughtful you are about this issue, you're in a position of such little social power mm-hmm. that it's just, um, to me, to, to exercise power in that way and wield it ungraciously is, is really sinister. Mm-hmm. And it's very tempting mm-hmm. too, because people like to feel powerful and to dominate. And um, so that's something I've seen a lot of. And I, 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 I understand, as you, as you said, Brittany, is like people hear this and they're like, oh, why are you, why are you so worried about white people's feelings? Like, what, <laughs> like who can, and it's like, like, wait a minute, like actually really examine that though. First of all, people are people. I care mm-hmm. about humans. So I'm not ashamed to be caring about humans that happen to be white suffering from a social dynamic that if it were applied to me, I would hope people would care about, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's deeply unhealthy, unfair. It's not, it's not a sustainable basis for harmonious race relations in the country. And I think a lot of people know that. And it has very little, if anything, to do with really advancing the ball on the legit issue of unarmed Americans killed by the cops. Yeah, I think I think I could be it'd be very interesting if we lived in a world where the the people who are most interested in having conversations about things like say systemic racism for example were broadly curious enough that they were willing to explore the dynamics that you were just talking about Coleman. Like which is it's actually kind of extraordinary to imagine, you know, black people in the Americas generally uh, suffering um, under a racist regime for centuries mm-hmm. and finding themselves in positions of power and in various elite circles. And I have a difficult time thinking of any elite circles where this wouldn't be the case. The mere fact of your blackness gives you authority in various <laughs> rooms is a source that will almost certainly help you find ways to be promoted. It doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. It means that you're dealing with both of these realities. Mm-hmm. And it means that, that both things could have kind of both beneficial and maybe even pernicious consequences. Um, and a curious person is broadly interested in all of those dynamics and what that might mean for our interactions with one another, with our ability to see one another as fully human, with the possibility that we might be overcorrecting for some problem. Um, an ideologue is only going to be interested in seeing one category of those problems and is mm-hmm. going to be very interested in preventing you from even talking about or suggesting that there could be something wrong with the way that they're advocating around these ideas. Um, so that I think that's, uh, it's, it's worthwhile to, to keep that in mind. It's like devil's advocate, I guess. Because I agree with you all, but I, do, I did see a lot of, people at white people at the helm of power, so to speak, pushing out white people to put in black people as window dressing of their own morality. So do you think that's something that was happening? Or do you think like 
that some people wanted people to use their blackness as agency and against white people because in some way that shows that that person is woke or 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 moral or or anti-racist if they allow a black person to have this power no no i think it's certainly possible but they're like this goes to motive right it is definitely the case that there are many people who were promoting black people in their ranks and trying to put them into positions of power it's also the case that other people were appealing for greater power for themselves on account of their blackness uh, whether they were motivated by a spirit of charity and a, gen- a genuine interest in justice, however you want to define it, or they were motivated by self-interest, it's difficult to tease out. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about that. I think it matters. I think it's worth noting that the incentives are such that you could be a Jussie Smollett and decide that it is in your personal interest to perpetrate a hate crime against yourself because you think that that might actually be beneficial for you professionally. Um, that's a, that's a dynamic that exists, but it's also the case that there are kind of pernicious actors who are going to take advantage of the circumstance for their own benefit and at the expense of whatever social project we're trying to advance. All of mm-hmm. us who care about, you know, a more, a more equal, um, free, and I will even use the word equitable society, um, but I'll use it in my own damn way. Um, <laughs> I, I think all that's, all that's worth doing and all that's worth keeping in mind. And I, I, I don't think it's, not appropriate to talk about and the motives for some of the people involved here. Um, but I do think it's important that we don't, that we don't stop there. Yeah, for sure. I agree. But isn't this, isn't a, a lot of this proof of a kind of atrophying of the spirit? And what I mean by that is whether it's black people doing it or white people doing it, there is a fundamental impoverishment of relationship at the heart of this. And So I can imagine people experiencing material benefit like you like you've been pointing to by sort of using their blackness or using their whiteness to advance a particular political agenda. But there is a there is still kind of psychological malnourishment. So even if someone is able to, you know, get a bigger salary or. Um, you know, get promoted to the C-suite or whatever in this business context, there's still at the end of the day, a kind of spiritual impo- impoverishment that ends up harming the people, even that have material power, even that are doing the bullying, as Coleman points out. And so I'm wondering, number one, what you think of that. But I'm also wondering, what is the role that you think social media plays in all of this? Right? Because if I'm in a specific environment for a long time, it's going to shape the way I behave. It's going to shape my instincts, right? It's going to it's going to just affect my instincts. I notice that if I'm on Twitter for way too long, I will totally be incentivized or just subconsciously start acting in an us versus them kind of way. And so I have to be disciplined about the amount of hours that I spend on social media. So the first question is, you know, isn't there still ultimately a kind of spiritual impoverishment, even if people are materially benefiting? And the second question is, what role do you think social media plays in shaping this diminishment of relationship, of our capacity to be in relationship with each other as citizens of a country and of a nation? I could take a stab at it. I think uh, I'm just spiritual impoverishment. I'm not sure I have a really clear answer to that. Mm-hmm. But one thing I will say is I think a lot of people are, are you know, the, the spiritual hole 
in the human mind for a lot of people is being filled by activism, by political activism. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that this is, I was actually just talking to a religious person yesterday about this to, to a Christian. And we were talking about the fact that even though I think religion is not true, I don't think any of the religions are, are factual. It's possible that if you take away all the bad stuff in the Bible and just leave the parts about, uh, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself and really taking seriously being kinder than you would want to be or you would tend to be, that that can be a kind of unifying force for people uh, that are that would otherwise not like each other. Mm. But if so, if your spiritual hole is being filled by something that is is telling you to be kinder and more open, um, that's one thing. That's it's it's hard to get too mad at that, mm-hmm. uh, even even as an atheist. <laughs> but if if it's being filled by an ideology which wants to sharpen the divisions between races, wants to insist that. You know, black people and white people, we're just, you know, separate. We don't have any, anything in common deeply. We should really basically keep to ourselves. And it's basically a competition between our two groups for power. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very motivating for people. And it's, it's, uh, it's not unifying at all. So I'm not sure whether it's spiritual impoverishment or the, the, kind of, the wrong type of spirit spirituality mm. because you know I mean, for what it's worth there are many religions that do this also there are religions that have a purely divisive message like sure. our sect of our religion is the one mm-hmm. that is correct about everything and the rest of the world is simply misled mm-hmm. so it's it's a little bit of another version of that but different because it has a political slant rather than a religious one mm-hmm. and then on social media what i would say is to me, I think maybe the most important and unhealthy aspect of social media is that everything that gets promoted to you is the worst version of the other side. Mm. It's never the thoughtful critique of your perspective that enters your newsfeed. It's always the article that is the most outrageous fringe of the thing you hate that makes it into your social media feed. So your picture of the other side is always, you're always seeing them at their worst Mm. and you're almost never seeing them at their best, which just gives you a, which almost inevitably makes you hate the people you hate or the, the, the movements you hate worse. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Well, I guess I'll just jump in as a Christian and I'll start giving my Sunday sermon to to Coleman. Um, Well, I am Christian. And even that is sometimes hard to say because that's been so tainted, but I believe in Jesus Christ. And it's a long story why I won't get into it. But I think my suspicions on certain things and things I believed in was because my faith was getting stronger to where things weren't morally aligning with me anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, with the white silence is violence and things that just didn't make sense. I was like, but these people are still people though. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I treating them the way I would not ever allow someone to treat me Mm -hmm. at all? Um, So yes, the impoverishment of that spiritually was feeling guilt and shame Mm -hmm. for things. Even if I was saying things publicly, 
that I didn't really agree with privately, I still felt guilt and mm. shame. And I'm thankful actually for that, for that um, feeling because that made me vet myself and interrogate myself and challenge myself. So um, it could be a good thing, but then with Coleman, what he said, people replace that with things that aren't um, efficient. And I think we're seeing that right now. People are utilizing activism or you are utilizing patriotism, being a patriot and wanting to find some type of community and wanting to find some type of belonging. And I think just people are just generally just lost. Mm -hmm. And I, I said this in an interview before, but I really feel like people really want to be good so bad mm -hmm. and that they are willing to sacrifice unbeknownst to them or beknownst to them sacrifice someone else's humanity to be good and i know that doesn't make sense but i'm seeing that a lot mm -hmm. in culture and yeah and with social media everyone just get off twitter and that'll be <laughs> i mean that's not gonna happen i i'm on twitter and actually chloe i saw your tweet about how you detox two weeks yeah. i think you said that yeah i'm gonna try to do that or at least a week but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely, or, or two days or two hours, but I definitely see social media just, it completely takes out the humanity of anyone. All you see is someone's Twitter handle and that's what they are, or their profile picture and that's what they are. That tweet is who they are. And it's easy to fight at that tweet and that person and say all these things you would never say to their face. Mm -hmm. Like all of these beefs that people have, they're not that bold in real life or they're not that cold in real life. They're really actually good people. And for me, there's people that I know that I have muted on social media because I'm like, you're actually a better person than this. And I cannot mm -hmm. stand you on here. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you don't, but you don't tell them, hey, homie, I'm gonna block you, because then that just starts a whole other thing. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that I love that I do not follow on social media because I'm like, your online persona is not where it's at. Like, this is not good. And perhaps I can have these conversations with them, but yeah, social media can be good and it can be evil. So, yeah, it, I I feel as though I'm always promoting Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the Public, and I'll just Ooh. plug it again here. Um, I, I think a lot of the general concern that we have about social media could probably be broadened to um, include a lot of the changes that have taken place over the course of the last couple of decades with respect to the increase in the volume of information that's available in the number of quote unquote authoritative sources um, that are available to us. Um, and um, I think kind of a splintering of our attention across all of these different spectrums and us in many respects, just trying desperately to have some sense of stability in the midst of all of that change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're kind of grappling with uh, this crisis of authority in the sense that a lot of the traditional places where we would derive some sense of, oh, that's what is true right, right. Uh, about the world. We don't have agreement on that anymore. And there have been many things that have happened that have degraded the authority of some of the institutions we used to depend on, whether they be religious institutions, and there's certainly been some high profile scandals there, mm -hmm. or bureaucratic government institutions where we've seen them make pretty profound errors in some cases systematically. And that's eroded our confidence as well. Um, I think the, the story of the next couple of decades and perhaps of the, the 
current generations who are here is going to be about like how we find a way to live in the new universe where we're always online, where we're super connected with one another, where we do have these, this bizarre new set of incentives that we're responding to online, where we get to decide what sort of persona we're going to put on, whether we're going to be firebrands or attacking the bad guys and you know performing and being our most acrimonious selves on social media, or whether there are ways that we can use those platforms, as we do sometimes, mm. to forge new communities that couldn't have existed before, to make friends across impossible transoms that couldn't be traversed before. I think that there's, there are opportunities and perils here, and there are plenty of reason, um, I think, to hope that we'll see some of those kind of better, brighter threads like, start to be the ones that get tugged on more. Um, just because there's so much exhaustion, um, I think. Uh, I'm certainly exhausted by a lot of the, the political culture war stuff. Um, I think that there are important things that are worth advocating for, mm -hmm. um, even more than advocating against in some respects. But at the same time, I'm, while I'm concerned about some of the trends that I see online, I also want to center it and say that it's, it's mostly about us and how we respond to it. Mm. And sometimes a detox is what's necessary. And sometimes uh, just the really determined effort to, to rebrand yourself online, mm. um, maybe to publicly commit to some sort of new ethos where the principal thing you're doing is interacting with the stuff that is really inspiring to you. Uh, beyond the stuff that is kind of most uh, disconcerting, mm -hmm. like that might be valuable um, and perhaps even more valuable than just kind of disconnecting from it completely. Yeah, well said. One of my favorite cognitive scientists, John Verveke, talks about how there's been different periods in human history where there's been a dehoming, where there's been a, a such a um, undermining of institutions, whether it's you know, Alexander the Great conquering the known world and all of those millions of peoples in that area is just experiencing a kind of dehoming effect for the first time, whether it's the undermining of, of church authority and people no longer looking to the church for, for what's true. I think we're going through a similar situation right now. And Kamel, you sort of picked up on this, but I'd be curious to hear both from Coleman and Brittany, what advice you would give to people who are sort of becoming aware that this is happening on a, on a massive level and how to, how to deal with it psychologically, how to deal with it within their own relationships. And the other question I have for you is what if people lack the sense of self, like the sense of self-confidence, the, the sense of self-worth that all of us have um, on this call, on this Zoom call, that enables a person to be curious in the first place. Because I think a, a lack of curiosity comes from, or a lack of the capacity to be curious, comes from an incredible amount of insecurity. The, the, the desire to have power or be power hungry, it, in the first place, it seems to me, is stemming from this profound fear of not being secure, of not having a secure sense of being. And that is affected by this, this undermining of the institutions and things, things that you spoke about, Camille. So how do you deal with that as a person? If you don't have a sense of self-worth internally, how are you going to be curious about the world? How are you going to be, allow yourself to feel safe enough to be vulnerable with others um, and, and therefore to be intimate with others? 
what's the yeah the last question that you just had i can just go with my experience i guess you just have to be open and could be wrong about everything mm. i mean that's kind of where it started for me like it started with one thing and then another thing and i'm like you know i might have got my whole life wrong let's just like reassess <laughs> yeah. and i i've always been a curious curious kid though a curious person that's why I went to write. That's why I went to journalism. I've always had that. But I think that a person has to start with one, if you're having this suspicious feeling about something, go with that. There's nothing wrong with exploring that. And two, be open to the fact that you might be wrong on not just one thing, but a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And to seek out people that can help you with that. I mean, you kind of, kind of you have to be careful with who you ask. Someone might be like, oh no, that's just this. Or oh no, there's nothing, no some problem there. Like you're fine. You got to like really know who to, to ask. And I can't really say who that should be for a person. I don't know, but, um, definitely different perspectives. Don't just look at one type of alignment, so to speak, to, to get advice, get advice from a lot of different point of views. So that's how I'd answer that last question. Remind me of the, the other question that you had. Just how to deal with the, you know, what Camille was talking about with the breakdown of institutions, the breakdown of, of elements in society that were once stable, that are no longer stable. The overwhelm of information. Social media and the internet can be a source of information, but not necessarily a source of wisdom, right? It can't really teach us necessarily how to discern what's relevant in the information. So any advice you would give um, to all of us who are dealing with that as a, as a phenomenon. I'm going to need moments to think about the answer. Okay. I'll kick it over to Coleman. Sure. Well, it's, it's funny. I actually just, I just asked that question to someone I had on my podcast who wrote a book called the gray lady winked about all the huge errors the the New York Times has made in the past hundred years, including mm. being very soft on Hitler mm. and reporting just like straight up reporting Nazi propaganda as truth um, in, in ways that were just egregious and surprising to me. And I think to, to a lot of people who don't know that, that they were just basically funneling um, Hitler's talking points in, on, wow. on, onto the front page of the New York Times. In any event, I basically asked him, like, okay, you've written a whole book on how, you know, the New York Times, our flagship national newspaper, you know, has, has been getting things wrong for a long time. And um, so what advice do you have to people who are trying to figure out what's true in the world in this landscape of uh, declining trust in newspapers, in media? You know, we're, we're in a scenario where if I'm trying to find out what's true about ivermectin, it's very difficult to know who's uh, getting things right. It could be a guy like Slate Star Codex or Astral Star Codex, Scott Alexander, just like an independent guy with a blog, essentially writing a huge meta analysis that is, from what I can tell, the best analysis of what's true about ivermectin, probably better than I'm going to read in the New York Times or the Atlantic. But then there are other people that are just like, cranks and you don't, you don't know who to, who to trust. Uh, and you don't have infinite time. Right. And I think, uh, what he made a good point, which is that you sort of have to choose where to put your energy. Like you can't, you, you probably have to, unless you're like a, a Tyler Cowan type of 
person who can read 10 books in a day and actually retain all the information, which I'm not, and most of us aren't, you sort of have to maybe a little bit tap out of certain issues and focus on where you can put enough energy in to actually develop trust, like deep opinions about who's right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, And then when it, when it comes to your other question, Chloe, about people who lack the self-confidence or, or self-worth to be curious. That's, a, that's actually something I, I never, really, never really thought about. But as you, as you asked the question, it occurred to me that changing your mind is an acquired taste. Mm. And it's, it's, a little bit like, it's a little bit like running a marathon in that it, it just looks horrible. It, like it, it doesn't look like fun from the outside. But when you ask people why they do it, they insist that, you know, on the 20th mile, when that runner runner's high hits, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. And you just sort of have to take the word for it if, 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 if it's not what you're into. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think changing your mind is a little bit like that in that it's just not <clears throat> pleasant at first or for a long time. When you, when you realize that you were totally wrong about something and you understand exactly why you were wrong and you now know that you're not wrong in that way, mm-hmm. it's, it's a huge relief and it's a very good feeling to just totally have inhabited a wrong opinion fully yeah. and then be educated about it to a much truer opinion. Mm. It's, it's, it's a really good feeling. And if people are never willing to put in the work to really get, if they, if they put the walls up at the beginning of when, when they're reading the article about why they're wrong, yeah. they never get to the other side of, of the great feeling of having fully changed your opinion. Yeah. Uh, then, then it's, it's difficult. It's, it's like telling someone why they should run a marathon when it just looks like you're sweaty and un, unhappy the whole time. Yeah. I really love that metaphor, especially because I'm never going to run a marathon. So <laughs> Same. I was like, good for that person. I was just going to add, just if it's popular, doesn't mean it's right. Mm. Like, just make sure it makes logical sense. And I know truth is subjective right now, but that's the number one thing, advice. All because it's popular and people agree with that idea doesn't mean that it's the right one. So, yeah, that's a very good point because because it, it goes back to something I said earlier. If something is popular and you're just agreeing it with it because it's popular, then there's some amount of vanity right there, right? It's like, I want to be, I want to look good. I want to make sure I'm associated with all the right people so that I look good. And that's really what's driving my endorsement of this opinion. I'm not actually wrestling with anything. So I think to just be able to stop and ask, what is my motivation for having this opinion? Is it actually pursuit of the truth or is it just because I want to look good in front of my peers? So. I mean, if I were to, to, to try to answer this, this specific question about how, how we ought to or what values we ought to embrace in order to try to live successfully in the world that we find ourselves in now, I mean, I think a lot of this, just, just to put some names to some of the things that have already been described, mm-hmm. um, being humble, um, mm-hmm. uh, having a sense that the things that you believe may in fact be wrong, as Brittany was alluding to, is, is fundamental Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sense in which we, we live in this world now where people often talk about the science and they yeah. talk about it in a very fundamentalist and definite way. Yeah. Uh, but for those of us who know a little bit about the sciences, some more than others, um, the, 
the sense that I have is that science is not this procedure for determining all of the things that are absolutely true about the universe, but a, a method for dealing with the universe of things that we have kind of provisional knowledge about and a process by which we can adjudicate between the things that are, that are right and true based on the best available information and things that are likely right and true best on this new emerging information mm-hmm. and people and sources of knowledge that are, are appropriately humble and curious that are demonstrating values like that in the way that they do their work, that they're asking probing questions and even being honest about the places where we are uncertain about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that is, those are good qualities for us to be on the lookout for in a world where, as Coleman correctly pointed out, we simply cannot have we don't have unlimited time. We can't establish kind of for ourselves necessarily a very clear, well-informed perspective on every single issue. Um, but we can outsource some of that work to other people, um, provided there are strong indications that they are going about trying to understand the complicated world that we live in, in a thoughtful and nuanced way. Um, and there are plenty of ways for us, I think, to, to learn, to, to look for that versus the declarative and the, the crying of the other side um, or, or beating the drum and uh, uh, dressing people down for using the wrong words in a particular <laughs> context or ignoring completely what is very likely the like subtext for some argument that might be happening in public spaces, which we see a lot of that too. Uh, yeah. And I think that certainly when we see that, we should be on guard. Awesome. Well, Camille, I'll, I'll let you have that last word. <laughs> Thank you to all of you for uh, this riveting conversation. I can't wait for it to come out. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And um, this was fun. I hope that uh, we can also do it again sometime. So thank you for coming on the pod. That's good. Thank, thank you. you. Awesome. awesome. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I'll see you soon. Take care.